Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Matthew's beloved rock and roll saxophone. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Audio Judo. I'm Kyle. Hello, and I am Matthew. Uh, today we are talking about the album Permanent Waves by Rush. Uh, before Ooh. we get started on that, I just want to mention that we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It is a group of podcasts devoted to music, music commentary, and all things associated. Uh, this network is growing exponentially with more and more content being added daily. I encourage you to check it out at pantheonpodcasts.com and then come back and listen to us. Yeah, there's some great episodes on there. I just started listening to uh, Let It Roll. Ooh, yeah. Their newest episode, the one that I just listened to was uh, The Beatles as the End of Rock and Roll. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. Check that out. It's uh, it's pretty good. I liked it. Cool. Uh, and we are back to recording in the evening. Yes. We used to record late at night, like midnight, yeah. before this whole COVID thing. And then during the lockdown, we moved during the day. And now, even though COVID is still going on, this is late July, by the way, we have uh, moved back to evening recording. Because mm-hmm. um, it's too damn hot to record during the day. It's true. Be it's, interested if it affects our stamina in any way. It's hard to record when there's steam coming out of your nose that picks up on the mic. It's just a little <laughs> noise. It's horrible. Ooh. So today we are tackling uh, one of my very favorite albums uh, from my favorite band, um, Permanent Waves, which is the album, not the band. Yeah. Uh, to be clear, this isn't only my favorite record of theirs, uh, but most likely my favorite record, period, of all time. I think most people that know me have been wondering why I haven't done a Rush album yet. <laughs> um, and the answer is quite simple. My fear is that I won't say all the things I want to or need to say and regret the things I didn't say. I've quite literally spent a lifetime listening to these albums, pouring over liner notes, seeing them in concert, reading books and articles. They have been my primary musical devotion, and their words and music are very much lifelines for me. So maybe this is a bit of a tall order for us to cover it in one episode, <laughs> but I'm going to try to keep myself somewhat edited and keep the information concise. That probably won't happen. You uh, you listeners at home have the advantage of being able to look at the runtime for this episode right now. <laughs> uh, we don't know what it is because we're recording it, obviously, but uh, if you look at it and it starts with a five... <laughs> I apologize. Yeah, Matthew apologizes. Now. I'm already sorry. Also, uh, so uh, this is your very favorite album. Yes. From your very favorite band. Yes. 
And I hated it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, that would have made such a great right? episode. I hate it. This is trash. I've no. just been yelling. I'd be yelling for five hours. <laughs> just like, no. It'd be funny, too, because you'd be yelling, but you couldn't get up because then the mic wouldn't pick you up. So you'd be trying to stand and wave your arms right? around. Randy would be like, over. Oh, you know, I got a lot of room noise yeah, in I that gotta, one. You're going to have to bend in. and Shit. Can you do that angry yell one more time? Yeah, let me repeat it. <laughs> uh, so for those of you who may have grown up in a vacuum or don't ever <laughs> listen to me talk. Rush is a Canadian power trio consisting of Alex Lifeson on guitar, Getty Lee on bass, keyboards and vocals, and the late, great Neil Peart, the professor on drums and percussion. For more on his life and career, please give our episode a listen from earlier this year called Remembering Neil Peart or some personal memories. Rush was active from 1974 to 2015. Between those years, they released 19 studio albums, many live albums and compilations, and one on 25 separate world tours playing almost 2,400 shows over those 41 years. Um, those studio albums would amount to 45 million albums sold, and only the Beatles and Rolling Stones had more consecutive gold albums in all of rock and roll history. Wow. So stick that. <laughs> <laughs> and they would be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2013 after a much too long of a wait. With the, with what might be the best rock and roll Hall of Fame induction speech, the blah blah blah. Are you speech. talking about the blah? Yeah, the blah blah oh, blah. So speech good is one of the best speeches ever given, and any Rush fan knew exactly what he was saying. Yeah. without him saying one word other than blah. So check it out on YouTube. Just actually, just type in blah blah blah. You'll get Alex Lifeson's speech yeah. in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Permanent Waves, which is the album we are talking about today, was their seventh studio album. It was released on January fourteenth, nineteen eighty. Um, one thing to be aware of for our younger listeners is that this is their seventh studio album in seven years. Yeah. They released one in 74, two in 75, one in 76, one in 77, one in 78, and then this one. Oh, and they also jammed a double live album into 1976. You know, because why not? This amount of material is unheard of in today's day and age of the musical landscape. Besides the fact that it is much, e uh, much easier and cheaper to produce music now. Uh, there still isn't this level of volume anywhere in the industry. And this is my own personal point of view, but producing that much music in that short of time does a couple of things. One, it makes you a better player. Uh, you develop proficiency with your instrument because there's literally no downtime. You are playing concerts night after night. You're riding on the road after these concerts, knowing that you will only have a few weeks to record when you finally get the chance to do so. Two, it makes you better arrangers. Spending that kind of intimate time with songs while you're on the road and then constantly in and out of the studio helps you to understand song structures better and how to lay things out. Three, it makes you better editors of your own music. Uh, you know what you are capable of, helps you to experiment more, and you have a solid understanding of the studio process. And four, you are never really that far out of the public's eye. You are literally going from one album to the next and touring, touring, touring. It must have felt like that band was constantly in your town playing a show. <laughs> so like I said, this is their seventh album. Uh, they had just finished their last tour supporting the 1978 release Hemispheres. And for the first time in their career, they did something. They took time off. Ooh. Six weeks to be exact. <laughs> the most time they had taken away from each other in the past seven years had been two weeks. So this must have felt like an eternity. Yeah. And it was needed. In an often repeated quote from Getty Lee, he said, The band was getting fried and getting stupid and not taking care of ourselves. 
So when they eventually got back together in July of 79, they were pretty clear on the direction the band wanted to take, and more specifically, what direction the band didn't want to take. They were done with the elements that had dominated their sound up to then, the sidelong epics like 2112, Hemispheres, and Farewell to Kings. They felt that they had taken that as far as they were willing to, and it was time for something else. And this album became a reaction to everything they had been doing up until that point. The last two albums had been recorded at a studio called Rockfield Studio in Wales. It was far removed from their homes in Toronto, um, and while it contributed greatly to the pastoral, country-like sound of those albums, it also took its toll on the band. That studio is famous for being where Queen actually uh, recorded Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, yeah. Uh, so it's a real serene country setting. But constantly being on the road and going and recording an album a continent away from their families and then immediately returning to the road greatly impacted the band, and they were determined not to do that anymore. So they convened in the summer of 1979 at Lakewood Farms, just a two-hour car ride away from their homes in Toronto. This meant more visits to home during the writing and recording process, allowing them to stay in touch with their families and recharge their batteries if they needed to. They started what would become their usual practice on this record as well. Neil, who besides being the drummer, was also the lyricist for the band, he would go to a small cottage room during the day and write lyrics. Getty and Alex would work on musical ideas in a separate area. In the evenings, they would get back together and see what they had to work on collectively. So in two weeks of work, they had sketches for four of the songs that would eventually become this record. From there, they moved to a small studio called The Sound Kitchen in Toronto, and they recorded a few demos. Fall of 79, they went on a small mini tour where they began to test market the new material and see if the reaction warranted a full record. And it did. So in mid-September 1979, they entered Le Studio in Quebec with their producer, Terry Brown, more on him later, to record the record. This choice to record the album at Le Studio may have been the single most important decision of their career. That studio became the unofficial fourth member of the band <laughs> and helped define their sound over the course of the next several records. Uh, Le Studio would give the guys everything they had not got from the last couple of studios in Wales. Besides being a few-hour drive from home, it played into their Canadianness. Well, it has literally the most Canadian name. You could get Les, Les Studio. Les Studio. B Bonjour, I am Les Studio. When it was owned by a couple named Andre and, R and Yale. Right. So it couldn't even get any more Canadian than that. <laughs> If they had poutine, maybe they had poutine for dinner every night. I, I wonder if there were like clowns and stuff out in front, mimes. Uh, I bet you that it was, this is early 1980, so it's possible mm. there was uh, some early group of yeah. street performers. Huh. Hmm. High, high on cocaine. I have to look into that. Dancing around <laughs> in front of Le Studio. Le Studio. Uh, more research warranted. <laughs> Please continue. So the studio sat on a private lake in the middle of a very hilly, kind of wooded, foresty area. Um, at one end of the lake sat the studio. At the other end, about a mile away, sat the very luxurious and comfortable guest house. Hmm. So they arrived in fall to record. They left in winter. They could travel to the studio by foot, by car, by rowboat, by bicycle, by snowshoe. And they did. <laughs> The recording facility had one whole wall of glass overlooking the lake and the mountains, and Neil had this to say about it. We worked in the light of the sun, and one could watch the changing seasons in idle moments rather than a dimly lit, smoky view of musical and electronic hardware. The mood was different, 
the view was different and the music was about to be different. You want to talk about the album cover? I'm sure you did some yeah, research. Yeah, uh, first, uh, one thing that did I did kind of find stunning about this album. Yeah. Very short. 35, yeah. 35. Yeah. 35 minutes, 35 seconds. Surprisingly short. I was very surprised by that. Second of all, reached number four on the Billboard 200 Top Albums chart, mm-hmm. which is pretty good. Yep. Produced two singles, uh, Spirit of Radio and Entre New, which uh, I was surprised Entre New was the single mm-hmm. off this. I figured it would have been Free Will, but... Well, there you go. Yeah. The other thing, I'm curious about your um, your take on this. Oh, I probably have one. I'm sure you do. A lot of people, and you kind of already brought this up a little bit, a lot of reviews and things that I was reading doing the research for this said that this was the album where they transitioned from uh, more of a prog rock sound to more of a uh, accessible radio rock sound. Very much so. And I, I'm curious to know... Do you think that that's not only, obviously, you think that that's true now. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it was intentional. But do you think that it made um, a difference in the career trajectory of Rush? For sure. Okay. Yes, it absolutely did. They were no longer, uh, and I addressed that uh, later on, they were no longer, they didn't want to be seen as prog behemoths. Cool. That are playing 18 minutes for for a lot of different reasons. One one of the main reasons is because it was so physically demanding. Um, I could do a whole episode right here about the last album off the top of my head, Hemispheres, the Mm -hmm. album before this, where they pretty much did everything they could to break themselves musically. (laughs) They challenged themselves to do so many things that what Getty would say was beyond them just to see if they could do it. And they were determined to never go down that road again, to to not overplay and overcomplicate things. They wanted to become songwriters. There's no argument what kind of musicians they were. Now what was in question was, well, can you write a good, simple song? Do you ha- Does it have to be so huge? Yeah. And they were determined to refine that that part of their sound, like the compositional part of it. And the arrangement part of it, and that they were they were determined to do that to never make another album like Hemispheres. Hmm. I mean, there's seriously there there's four songs on Hemispheres. One, the first song is 18 minute side piece, <laughs> right? And then there's a short three minute song on the the beginning of the second side, then a six minute song, and then a nine minute instrumental. I think it's nine or eleven minutes. And there's actually a section in that instrumental that's called, or no, the subtitle of that that song, it's La Vila Strangiato, is called An Exercise in Self-Indulgence, where they're basically saying, we've done everything we can to make a mess of this. <laughs> and they, you know, they kept trying to record it and get it in one take, like one solid take to record. And it's 11 minutes long. They ended up using like four takes, but yeah. they tried it for like four days to just, <laughs> just kept doing it. Like, let's get it, let's get it. And they couldn't do it, which is more power to them that they actually used to play that night after night on tour. But yeah, that's nuts. Yeah. A couple other things I noticed about this album. Obviously, I'm sure we'll get to this. Uh, Hugh Syme was the art director for the cover, which we'll get to in just a second. Yeah. But he also played piano on uh, different strings. That is correct. On the album cover, Inspiration of Vocal Coaching by Daisy the Dog. That's uh, Terry Brown, uh, who they refu- refer to him as Brune. That's one of his names. Uh, they all have like like 100 nicknames for yeah. each other. Brune is Terry Brown, and that was his dog, Daisy. And there's actually in uh, uh, in the tour book 
for that, which is over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> of course, it's of course it's here somewhere. Uh, there's a picture of Getty Lee sitting with Daisy on his lap at the sound at the mixing board. So, oh, so clearly the dog was some sort of inspiration. To yeah, him. and then uh, there was also I'm sure you've heard this quote before. What are you implying? I'm just implying that you know a lot about Rush. Oh. Uh, this is from Alex Lifeson uh, in Guitar Player Magazine in 1980 about the title of this album. Uh, he said, this era seems to be pushing new wave and this wave and that wave. The material we're doing is just permanent wave. It's just music. It's the love of music and how, with everything new, it's just a continuation, like a wave coming back in from the ocean. Yeah. I thought that was beautiful. It is beautiful. That's cool. I, I do love that's one of the things that I love about Rush is that they really do seem to enjoy the music they're playing throughout their whole career. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like they were one of those bands, like so many bands start out playing for the love of music and then just become, you know, we're, uh, we're playing this again. Nope. All right. Here's the here's the hit that you guys like. Strum, 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 strum. I don't feel like Rush ever got that way. I don't feel like they ever let the music take over. They kept playing they're, for the love of the music. They're a fans band. Yeah. And they they played because the fans paid to see them play. And they knew that and they appreciated that. And there wasn't gonna be a time like they were once Tom Sawyer was recorded and Tom Sawyer got popular mm-hmm. and everybody loved it, there was never gonna be a night again that Rush took the stage that Tom Sawyer wasn't on the set list. Yeah. They weren't ever gonna be like I'm so sick of playing that song, I don't want to play it anymore. Like, no, <laughs> no. A, a it's hard to play. So there's a, a certain level of like achievement when you play it right, but that's what the fans paid us. That's what they're, they're paying to see this. So we're going to give it to them. Yeah. And that's always how they approached it. That it was, it was very much their job, but it was a job that they were passionate about and, and loved and loved doing and, and two thirds of them still love doing it. Yeah. But, but yeah. So the album cover. Yes. Uh, so like you said, it was a created, by Hugh Syme. Uh, he's their longtime graphic designer. Uh, he's done, did everything from the third album, Crest of Steel, to date. So everything that's come out since then, he has had a, uh, a, he has had a hand in, like whether it's books, singles, live compilations, separate artwork or whatever. He's, he's basically in the band. Cool. This is just what he does. He's also a musician, like you mentioned, and played. Rush likes to have an album cover that represents, you know, what's going to be sung about on the record. So, you know, Hugh was looking to capture the chaos that is going on kind of all around us. So, you know, it's a picture of a hurricane. And that picture is from, I can't remember that. I, I read it somewhere. Flip Schulke. Yes, that's it. This is, a, it's a picture of a Seawall Boulevard and 23rd Street in Galveston, Texas. Galveston, yeah. And I don't know, do you know much about, uh, it was right after Hurricane Carla. That's uh, what I was trying to think September of. September 11th, 1961. 61, yeah. And then the, obviously the photo of uh, Paula Turnbull, the. <laughs> Sorry about that, Randy. <laughs> uh, obviously the photo of Paula Turnbull, the act, uh, the, I'm sorry, the model was uh, composited in on top. My apologies. Randy. <laughs> <laughs> Beer bottle to the microphone. That's good. Ah, uh, that happens. Yeah. But uh, I had never heard of Fip, Flip Schulke before, but uh, I kind of looked him up. According to the Flip Schulke archives, uh, he took firsthand photos of at least five hurricanes, including Hurricane Carla, uh, the third most destructive disaster in U.S. history. Uh, and apparently what he used to do to get pictures is he would know that a hurricane was coming. He would go out and strap himself to a phone pole 
and take pictures throughout the hurricane so that he was he could stay there and get pictures during and immediately after. Wow. Um, and That's I, dedication to craft. Yeah. And I'm not sure if um, this exact photo is not available anywhere online except as part of the album cover. Mm. And according to one of the fan sites that I was reading, they were saying that they think that the flip... Uh, Flip Schulke archive may have taken it off specifically because it was used as mm. part of this cover. But there are other photos where you can see these same elements from different angles. Okay. Which is really cool. Um, yeah. I, I think we should also probably quickly talk about the, uh, the newspaper and the Coca-Cola signs. Sure. So that it's, it's interesting to me. I don't know if it's interesting to anybody else. You want to go to the cover the Coca-Cola signs if you want. Yeah, sure. So in the background of the photo, there are some old Coca-Cola billboards and obviously, you know, that's kind of a no-no without Coca-Cola's permission, and they didn't want to give it. So it was hand-drawn over with uh, the names of the band members and uh, on the earliest covers. And then later on, I think it's just blurred out. It it's is. Just, 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 you can tell it's a Coca-Cola sign because of the shape, but it's just the shape of a Coca-Cola sign. So in the controversy, mm -hmm. uh, there is a yeah. newspaper on the ground amidst all the chaos uh, on it, there's a headline, and it used to read, Dewey defeats Truman, uh, a callback to the Chicago Daily Tribune mistake of the 1948 presidential election. Which they're still sore about. Right? When the newspaper mistakenly called the race for Dewey, only to find out that he had lost. So the newspaper objected to Rush using that headline. Um, so Syme changed it to Dewey, D-E-W-E-I, defeats Truman, instead of <laughs> D-E-W-E-Y. And apparently that was significant enough to uh, appease them. But uh, on later versions, it was also blurred out. It is blurred which out. Which is, yeah, they just eventually, it's just like a white blur over that. So <laughs> someone's getting lazy. Yeah. <laughs> I did think that was, it, that's so fascinating to me that the newspaper gave a shit that it appeared in a, you know, less than a square inch size on the cover of an album like, you effed that up yeah. in 1948. It is, and also it is historically well known. Right, that picture of Truman holding up the newspaper that says <laughs> Dewey defeats Truman. Like, hey Chicago, uh, let it go. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Nobody cares anymore. So yeah. that's uh, so that's that. So uh, should we go to the track by track? Oh, I got I got one. Quote. Oh, you got one more. I got I got a quote. I got to read. Ooh, all right, read it. This is a uh, Hugh Syme did an interview with uh, Cream magazine in 1983. Right, that's C R E E M, and that is not a porn mag. That is a rock and roll magazine. It was I don't think it's around. Anymore. It is not. Was sorry. I... But I thought this was kind of interesting. Uh, Hugh Syme said, uh, "Permanent waves is the result of a conversation which I had with Neil out at his home in the country." We spoke all evening about Rush growing up and how we were going to do these EKG readings of each member as they were recording. We were going to tape their temples and chests and have real heartbeats of them while they were playing. So Permanent Waves was going to be a technical statement, and we were going to treat that with red and gold foil and do a nice study in design as opposed to a photographic thing. Uh, I walked out and in the doorway said, wait, let's try something with Donna Reed with her permanent tawny hairdo and have her walking out of a tidal wave situation. Neil gave me a blank look and said, get out of here. <laughs> the following day, he asked me to consider doing just that because he discussed it with the band and they'd all thought it was more likely for a cover than the serious approach. <laughs> that sounds like them. Right? Get out of here. Get, then, get out of here. Actually, you know, we were thinking about it and, uh, you know, uh, we talked about it and uh, it's a much better idea than what we, uh, <laughs> we thought of because we suck. 
Although I got to admit, just reading about the idea of having like the EKG and in like a really nice red with like gold inlay over the top, that sounds fascinating to me. It sounds like it would be a beautiful design. Well, and it was supposed to be an EKG of each one of them while they were playing. Yeah. So it was, you know, one was going to probably be more active than the other. Yeah. <laughs> like, who is that? Is he okay? Looks like he's having a stroke. I do mention that later, but in a different way. So that's oh, okay. okay. That's yeah. good. Good. That's it's a it's, what is it called where you double uh, suggest things to people so they remember them? I don't know. Yeah, I don't either. Uh, but that's <laughs> that's what we're going to do here. Okay. Let's get into it though. Track by track. Indeed. The first song uh, is "The Spirit of Radio." Oh. If ever there was a song that presented the notion that the band that you had been listening to for years was about to change, this was it. Open the record with a thunderous, fast-fingered riff that countless guitarists have tried to emulate for years. Let every fan know that the lumbering, slow-building epics of the past several years were gone and Rush was embarking on a new sound. More concise, more direct, straightforward sound. Perhaps more accessible. Hmm. Song literally jumps out of the speakers. And what I'm still taken aback by after all these years is the immediately, ooh, the immediacy and the urgency of the song. It sounds like this. That still sends shivers down my spine. I remember the first time I heard this song. I was sitting in a computer classroom in 10th grade. And I was just at this point in life where I was getting into like really, really nerdy pursuits like Dungeons and Dragons and shit like that. <laughs> and uh, uh, a friend of mine who I actually played Dungeons and Dragons with, uh, we basically, this was just a fuck around class for us. We didn't actually learn anything in this programming class. Mm -hmm. The teacher just, the first few days he tried to teach and then he kind of started playing video games on his own computer while the rest of us screwed around on the internet and uh, uh, played video games. But uh, <laughs> my friend came walking over and he's like, dude, what do you, what do you, what kind of music do you listen to? And I was like, you know, a little bit of everything, classic rock. He's like, do you know Rush? I'm a big Rush fan. I was like, I mean, you know, I know him, but he's like, no, no, no. Of course you are, nerd. No, That's no, what no, you no, said. no, 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 no. Listen, you got to listen. You got to listen to this song. I just downloaded it. Log into my account. It's like, all right. So all he right. logs in and put my headphones on and spared the radio. And I'm just, I'm sitting in this classroom I'm like, what the hell is this? I don't think I've ever heard this before. Like I've heard Tom Sawyer before. Yeah. And I knew that was Rush, but I was like, this is amazing. And I don't know if it was because it was, you know, just the setting or because I was listening on headphones or what, but it, it completely like i was like yeah okay i guess i like these guys now i should probably go download a bunch of their music and of course at that time that meant illegally downloading a bunch of their music so <laughs> suddenly you have their whole catalog you know without paying for it which is awesome and illegal and horrible and sure awesome. sure but uh yeah you know since then it's kind of been a uh, i wouldn't say i'm at the same level you're at obviously well but uh i do i do like them a, a lot well that's good so Included in the liner notes for this album, right below the lyrics mm. of this first song, is a dedication that read, inspired by the spirit of radio in Toronto, alive and well, 
so far. Mm. Source of that dedication was Toronto's CFNY-FM, located at 102.1 on the radio dial. So there's a a guy named David Marsden. He used to work for a rival station in Toronto, Chum FM. And while working there, he would play Rush all the time. One time while working late at night, Alex Lifeson called in and requested that he play Rush, which of course he did. (laughs) He eventually left there and began working for CFNY. And one day on a break, he was thinking that the station needed some sort of catchphrase. And he kept thinking of the spirit of St. Louis, uh, Charles Lindbergh's plane for some whatever reason. And he went to the the break room and wrote Spirit of Radio on the bulletin board and told all the other DJs to say that after the call letters of the station. And there it was. No meetings, no focus groups. Bam. New slogan. So Neil would often refer to this station as the last of the really free format radio stations where the playlists were decided by the DJs because they liked the music. (laughs) It wasn't decided in corporate offices by people who were deciding what people would listen to. It was based on what they thought was good. And if people called in and requested more of it, then they played more of it. No pre-designed playlists, just music that people wanted to hear. So Neil referred to this, uh, referred to the station as, quote, they had these kind of personal experiences where you turn on the radio in the morning, you hear a song that you haven't heard a lot, but all of a sudden captures you and just starts your day off on the right footing. Those kinds of magic things that everyone has a relationship to are irreplaceable, and they're the kind of thing that really get lost from radio as it's become more homogenized. So <laughs> this song is about integrity. It's about playing what you believe and not giving a rat's ass whether or not people buy it, but doing it because you love it. <laughs> this was the essence of Rush. Back in 1975, the, ver- the band was on the verge of collapsing entirely. Their third album was not well-received by most people. The tour for that record was dubbed the Down the Tubes Tour <laughs> and saw them play to 100 people in some places. Ooh. They were prepared to pack it in and go back to their regular jobs. Uh, They had one record left on their contract with Mercury Polygram, and their label at the time wanted hits, as they do. They basically thumbed their noses at them. Rather than make an album to appease the label and compromise their integrity, they went ahead and did another concept record with even less hit-sounding songs called 2112. That record made them stars, sold several million copies, and allowed them to (laughs) never hear from a label again. The agreement they have always had since then was, we write it, we record it, and then we hand it over to you. No interference. (laughs) And now here they are spouting the importance and value of integrity, being yourself, of not compromising. That's not your typical rock song. Yeah. They've taken a lot of flack for that over the years, that they're preachy. Too serious. They don't talk enough about tits, apparently, mm-hmm. to 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 warrant a serious conversation. Like, I'm sorry, did you say to warrant in quotation marks? Yeah, I did. A serious <laughs> conversation. <laughs> just wanted to make sure I saw this. It's just that they're talking about things that that it were important to them because they they wanted to continue to be musicians and you they valued integrity and how people handled themselves, and it's it's a big deal. I think that's awesome, though, because I think that's one of the things that is so lacking in music in general is, you know, the minute there's a lot of people that are very, um, uh, you know, they start out with this, the integrity and they're like, no, man, it's for the music. It's for the music. And the second they get the taste of fame, the second they get the, you know, 
the the money and the the women and the men and everybody else that rolls in, they immediately are like, you know, yeah, you know, let's roll out another album that's not quite to the same level, just so we can get it out and keep going. And eh, you know, let's what is the studio, what is the production company think we should make? Let's just make that and get it out on the radio as quick as possible. Yeah, it's a little, yeah. I, I'm glad that they they've always they've stuck to their guns and they've talked about you know serious topics and stuff that that I want to read about and listen about. So this song, Spirit of Radio, uh, would be the opener for countless shows that I attended throughout the years. It was also the or- the uh, encore for many years. Um, it's a concert staple. Rush very clearly wears their influences on their sleeves. They were listening to a lot of the police back then, uh, evident by the reggae section at mm-hmm. the end. Uh, police had been incorporating a lot of that for a number of years, and Rush now felt, you know, it was time. We could put that in there. And uh, Within that section... Uh, the reggae section, there's an interp- interpolation of a line from The Sound of Silence by Simon and Garfunkel. Uh, the original line is, for the words of the prophets are written on the subway walls. Mm-hmm. Neil changed this to, for the words of the prophets, that's prophets money, are written on the studio walls. Then there was a pause, and then concert halls. It was at this moment that all the lights in their rig pointed at the stage were turned towards the audience in bright, open white. And every hand in the arena went up and people went freaking nuts. <laughs> Didn't matter how many times we had seen them do this, this was the interactive moment. It was a chance to connect <laughs> with them. And it was a great moment every single time it happened. And it's tr- still great when I watch it on concert videos. It's like, at that moment, you're like, you're just like getting ready for it. I'm like, here it comes. Here it comes. So... The song got to number 51 on the Billboard Top 100. Not necessarily a hit, but for a progressive hard rock band that rarely sings about love and has very heady lyrics and virtuoso musicianship, I'd say it was a pretty big deal. Uh, Eventually be named one of the top 500 songs that helped shape rock and roll by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and it's one of the five songs by Rush inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame as well. You have anything else on that? I was just going to say, I think that, uh, well, I guess first of all, I should mention uh, the steel drums in this were played by Erwig <laughs> Chow Chadua, I believe is how it's pronounced, right? Chow Chadua? Yeah. I have been trying to pronounce that all week, and every time I'm like, were I'm, you able to, I'm going to screw this up. Did you Google that name? I did. Yeah? What'd you find out about Erwig? Not a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What? So who is... Because literally, that's the only thing I can find. Because it's it's no one. It's no one. It's it's them. So okay, it's just a joke. I wondered if it was it's because like joke. I was like, who the hell, Erwin Chowchadua? <laughs> I was like, who the hell? It's like, just, and then I was just like, just a joke. Yeah, I <laughs> interesting. <laughs> I really did wonder because I wrote that down and I was like, huh, I should probably look that person up. And I tried to look it up and I was like. No mm, other records. No other credits. No other credits. Doesn't even seem to have a... Maybe it's a local Toronto steel drum player. Of course. There are many got. of those. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Uh, so I wondered. I really did. Like I know I'm going to sound like a jackass, but I really did wonder. Mm. And I was like, eh, I should ask Matthew before we start recording. And I was like, no, this will no, be no, better. No, no, no. Wait until the episode. This will be better. I'll look like more of a jackass. Yeah, it's better. So... <laughs> So, the only other thing that I, I was going to say is, uh, which one of these do you think is a bigger hit, uh, Spirit of Radio or Tom Sawyer? Oh, Tom Sawyer is a, big, a bigger hit. You think so? Yeah. Yeah. Whether or not, if you're asking which is a better song, that's up, 
more for debate, but I believe yeah. Tom Sawyer is a bigger hit. Okay. Uh, next song is Free Will. Mm. It's one of my top five Rush songs for sure. Not only for what it's saying, but how it says it. Uh, this song above all else in the Rush catalog is the perfect marriage of lyrics and music. It is one of many, one of um, many of Neil's songs that would take religion to task for how it presents things. Wait, is this song about religion? I don't know. Something like that. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Uh, in 1980, Neil said this in an interview with renowned DJ Jim Ladd. A lot of mysticism, whether it's astrology or religion, would have you believe that men are evil and must be controlled. And that's the whole premise behind all of those things, that there is something better than man because man isn't so good. And those things have to look after us because we can't look after ourselves. I believe that might be a nice delusion to hide behind. But when it comes down to it, you make the choices. Even if you avoid making the choices by choosing one of those screens to hide behind, you have still made a choice that affects the outcome of your life. I don't believe that there's anyone running my life except me. The lyrics are intense. Yeah. I mean, it, when you sit down and, and break this song down, it is, uh, it is a fascinating discussion about religion and whether or not it's, it's something that can survive in the 21st century and whether it should survive in the 21st century. Right. So it's a great song, though. I really do like this one. The the like I said, lyrics are intense. They're special. Uh, my mom loved this song. Oh, that's fascinating to she me. She was very engaged with the lyrics as a devout Catholic, a Sunday school teacher, a degreed theologian. Yeah, it always surprised me that she liked this song as much as she did. But the feeling is universal, whether it's on the positive side or the negative side of the idea being presented. He says, if you choose to believe or not. You're still choosing. Yeah. And she had a great deal of respect for that. Uh, she was saying, I choose to believe. She had steadfast faith, which I never completely understood, but I respected it. So she was much the same way towards him. He was being ambivalent towards faith. If you had it, okay. But if you didn't, okay. Don't waffle. Make a choice and live with it. And I remember her using this song in catechism, our Sunday school, to illustrate a point, and I was amazed that she would use something that was so important to me personally to make a point about faith, and it made me contemplate a lot of the things in the song, which I'm sure was her point Yeah, to begin with. <laughs> sure, that was not intentional at all. It was a complete accident. Yeah, that's... that's a, Although, I'm, I'm, I would imagine... She did. I would imagine your mom probably did a lot better than, like, youth pastors do today. Oh, she was Although, fantastic, like, yeah. Hey, kids, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about the Justin Timberlakes. <laughs> the uh who's this uh skrillex fella first let's do a trust fall let's everybody. do a trust fall everybody <laughs> who's this uh skrillex fella here with his boom boom booms and his bang 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 is he going to drop the bass he's gonna, he's gonna <laughs> drop the bass on I all gotcha. of us yeah uh, how about this uh skateboard trick i learned here <laughs> <laughs> no she was uh she was very she was very good she was very well prepared Musically, it is one of the most complex and dense five-minute songs you will ever hear. Uh, its sound, at least the tone of the guitar and sound of the drums and bass, are very similar sounding to Spirit of Radio, which, of course, is the Le Studio sound. Mm. It dominates the whole record. It's one of the best sonic experiences in all of Rush's catalog, even though they would record an album 32 years after this. <laughs> uh, it's all over the place as far as time signatures and structure, but the most important part of the song happens from the three-minute mark to the four-minute mark. Sounds like this. 
Oof. Chills down the spine with that one. This section of the song is the part that defines the musicianship and is so representative of every member of the band. From this really extremely athletic, driving bass line and solo to the complex and quick patterns that Neil's doing to the frenetic, blistering guitar solo that Alex plays, it's all of them in a microcosm. So when this section occurred on stage, it was one of those moments that you waited for in anticipation. You have an arena with 10,000 rabid Rush fans who have digested, dissected, and tried to recreate, because we are all air drummers at heart, every note on all of these songs. And we know this one. So when it gets to this part of the song, we all collectively hold our breath and just sit in awe as these masters go to work. And for one minute, we are completely transfixed. And at the end of it, every single time, no matter where I've seen them in the country, the crowd erupts, goes nuts. Because we all knew how hard that part was and making it through every time unscathed was such a huge, great achievement. Like it was just a collective, just that mass of people just watching these guys just do their thing hoping they all come out because they're actually playing two different time signatures there. Yeah. They're all going to come out and line up and it's so, it was such a great experience every single time. That was one thing I did find super fascinating is uh, I'm not a musician. So, you know, things like time signatures and things, I understand technically what they mean, but Mm -hmm. I don't understand how you would really implement them. But I know that uh, in researching this, it was a 13, four time signature, 15, four, Mm -hmm. 12, 8, 4, 4, 3, 4, all over the place. That's a mess. And, and at times, different time signatures depending upon who's playing. That is correct. That's bonkers to me. And I don't even understand. I don't even understand it like on a level above like, okay, yeah, I basically understand what they're trying to do. I don't even understand it from the technical aspect of like playing it that way. And that... It wasn't easy. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it would be. Nope. And... Uh, yeah, it was always just amazing. Still amazing to watch. And every time I listen to it, it's it's like, ooh, I love this part. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I've, I've heard this song a couple thousand times or more. And it's like, doesn't matter. Every single time. <laughs> well, one other thing needs to be mentioned is the conscious departure from the high screaming vocal work. Yes. On this record, Getty Lee had been compared to Robert Plant and also a hamster in a blender. Uh, is one of those things that turned people off about the band. Um, And they purposely wrote this record. Like you had mentioned, if it was a a very distinct departure from when they had done in the past, yes, they recorded this. They wrote specifically with his vocals a little tamer, a little uh, down in the register. So it wasn't so squelchy, except for the last part of the song where he brings that wheel back one more time. Although I think it's kind of a callback, right? It's kind of like them saying... This is what it used to be, and now we're moving on. Yeah. I don't know how conscious it was. If it was, they're even smarter than I thought. Huh. It could have just been like, oh, my God, I made it through that part. I'm going to really yell. Because it's a lot of work. Yeah. I got to imagine that's that kind of singing has just got to blow out your vocal cords every night. Yeah, it did. And he didn't... Uh, he He was very particular, especially as he aged. He would not talk between shows. Like they, oh, wow. they'd record or they, you know, do their show on a, on a, uh, whatever, like a Monday night. And if they had a show on Tuesday night, he wouldn't talk between the end of the Monday night to the Tuesday concert. And if they had a Wednesday off, then he would talk, but he just, he would just stop doing that wow. to protect it. And he always wore 
like wore a scarf in between and just keeping it warm. And it was they're they're professionals, and they they didn't ever want to have to cancel a show because of something like that yeah. that could be prevented. So that's cool. Do you have any more about that song? No. All right. It's I think you covered all my notes. Probably. Yeah. Jacob's Ladder. It's the next song on here. So of my top five Rush songs of all time, two are on this record. Free Will and this one. But this one is my favorite song of all time. I kind of thought, I remember we've talked about this before, mm-hmm. and I kind of just listening to it again, I was like, oh yeah, I can see why Matthew likes this. So Fairly long, over seven minutes, uh, very few lyrics, lots of drums. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly the most cinematic song in their repertoire. Yes. Uh, Neil said this about it. Uh, we looked at this song as being a cinematic kind of exercise. And before any words were written, we talked about the image of Jacob's Ladder, of a cloudy sky coming along, and then all of a sudden those beams of light that everyone sees. We created music out of that image and wrote the whole song around it. So for those unfamiliar, Jacob's Ladder is the phenomenon of the sun breaking through the clouds in visible rays, which in turn was named after the biblical ladder that Jacob saw of angels ascending to heaven. So there's there's a darkness to the song. It's a beautiful darkness that has always resonated with me personally. Those are called crepuscular rays. Oh, that's such a great word. Comes from the Latin crepusculum, <laughs> meaning twilight. Meaning Tepusculum. Meaning, meaning <laughs> tepusculum. Yeah, but uh, I, I, I've always thought those were fascinating because they, they appear this vibrant orange color. Yeah. Because the light rays have to pass through so much more atmosphere because they're at such a steep angle and it blows off uh, all the, the, the deep reds and all the heavy blues. So they appear super, super orange. And it's amazing to watch the right type of sunset mm-hmm. with the clouds just right and everything, especially if you're someplace like a beach where you can see the sunset, uh, West Coast Beach, I guess I should say, and you can see the sunset. It, it looks it's a special. Beautiful. It's a special thing to see. You know, I've, I've heard tons of different people be like, oh, those are, you know, that would show up every once in a while. It's God collecting the souls that have passed away. And that's, you know, I've heard many, you know, beautiful stories about it, but just to see it is is pretty miraculous. It's very cool. So there's two stories from that same year, uh, two stories from the same, the same year that helped kind of tell this story for me. So in 1984, I was 12 and I had a paper out delivering the Detroit news. I had a Schwinn bike with the saddlebag full of papers. Every day at 3.30 or 4, I would ride my bike to the paper station about two miles from my house, pick up my papers. And my route covered streets near my house, so I was usually done by about five or so. With the money that I had made from that route, I had bought my first Walkman and many tapes. Permanent Waves was one of those tapes. And there was a, there was something about the song that always felt very different, felt special. Uh, its music, its lyrics conjure up like this Midwestern autumn feel, heavy gray skies, chilly air, leaves on the ground. And this song was the best repre- uh, representation of that. And to this day, I can't hear that song without being transported back to that bike back to those days. And I was so much in tune with that song because I listened to it every day. There was a point in the song uh, in the middle where it almost felt like, like it was slowing down a little bit, like he was dragging the tempo a little bit. Mm-hmm. And turns out it was when I finally could figure out how to figure that out. <laughs> but at the time being 12, 
I'm like, why? I used to get so pissed because I I felt like every single time I was listening to that song, the batteries in my goddamn Walkman were dying <laughs> because it would just get a little bit slower. And I'm like, what? What? The? So I'd stop my bike and flip the tape over. I'm like, no, it sounds right on this side. Why does it sound like it's slowing down? And I'd flip it back over and put the tape in. I'm like, no, there it goes again. Oh, I went through so many batteries that I didn't need to change. <laughs> so mad. But so uh, global warming, Matthew's fault because all the fault. batteries he threw out in 1984. It's my fault. It's fine. I I accept that. I deal with it. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, musically, it's just one of the. It's just some of the best guitar work that Alex Lifeson has ever done. All these harmony sol- solos, great tone uh, throughout the song. There's these syncopated moments that further push the cinematic feel along. It's very much like a movie to me. It, builds and builds this crescendo and then it drops off to this very uh, ethereal part um this is what his guitar solo sounds like It's interesting to me that you said that it, it builds and builds and builds and then kind of just trails off mm-hmm. at the end because I felt that same way about this song. Uh, do you know what a Jacob's Ladder is, the electrical device? I, I kn- I've, I've seen it, obviously, in so, movies and stuff. Yeah, so if you have never seen one of these before, yeah, I'm sure you have, but uh, you might not know it. Think about the background of like a, a bad black and white Frankenstein movie. Uh, on top of some piece of equipment, there are two things that look like old television aerials going up. And in between them, you'll see an arc of electricity that goes and then phases out. What does it do again? Gotcha. And then fades out. Um, that's called the Jacob's Ladder. Uh, and the way that they work is they create this incredibly strong current between the two uh, pieces of metal that are sticking up. It actually ionizes the air around the electricity, and as it goes up, the ionization gets weaker and weaker and weaker until it can't hold that arc anymore, and then it dissipates, just like the song. Hmm. It starts out really strong. It it builds and builds and builds, and then it dissipates. Mm, that's a great visual. I don't know. That totally, like, when I read the name Jacob's Ladder and I was listening to this the other day, I was like, oh, yeah, that's definitely what they were thinking about. And I started researching it, and I was like, not at all. Not at all, but still, good point. Popped into my brain, so I spouted it out on a podcast. I do like that. I do like that uh, visual, though. It's nice. Now I have to listen to it again. <laughs> Damn it. I'm so later. sorry I made you listen to more Rush. Uh, I'm going to have oh, to do such that a later jerk. after you leave. Uh, so this song was performed way back on the tour when the album came out in 1980 and then shelved for years and years. Really? Uh, they finally dusted it off for their final tour in 2015. And it's an amazing, magical experience. So I can vividly remember standing on the lawn of the Irvine Amphitheater. Uh, with the song blasting, lasers bouncing overhead, and my oldest son, my oldest son standing next to me. That was the penultimate show of their career. Uh, and there was so much emotion because you just knew that this was really it. Um, I have some great footage on my phone of that moment that I will treasure forever because it's just one of those moments where you're like, that, that, this is it, this is it, this is it. And uh, that was a big deal. <laughs> uh, the, uh, another story attached to this song. So part of the reason why it's so stuck in my memory uh, I mentioned uh, two stories from 1984. This is the other. So in the fall of 1984, my brother was starting his junior year at Oakland University, University in Michigan. 
Uh, every fall, they had a little brother, little sister weekend there that younger siblings could spend a weekend with their older sibling at college. Just what every college student wants. Right. So I went, and it just so happened to coincide with the campus musical uh, in which my brother was playing the drum set in the pit band. Hmm. I really didn't want to spend all evening there, so I stayed back in his dorm room by myself and told him, hey, I'll just sit here and listen to music. <laughs> uh, his roommate had this killer sound system, so I was more than happy to uh, sit. So I found this record in the stack and proceeded to play it over and over again, partly because I couldn't figure out how to turn off the auto-repeat function on the record player. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't want to break it, and partly because I loved it so much. But I played it too much. After about the 12th playing of Jacob's Ladder, remember, I couldn't flip the record over. It was just <laughs> the first side. Uh, my brother's sweet mate started pounding on the wall and yelling, God damn it, turn it off and play something else. <laughs> so I turned the volume down because I still couldn't turn it off and hid in the chair next to the window until my brother got back. <laughs> so for some reason, that's ingrained in my brain, this song, because I was like scared that some 19-year-old Midwestern boobs were going to, like, break the door down and kick my ass. <laughs> like, I'm sorry I played. I'm sorry. Your brother got a degree in engineering, right? Yeah. So his, chances are his roommates were just a bunch of fucking pimply-faced nerds. <laughs> well, they were, but then... But, but then again, you were only 12. Yeah, but 12, so, they were still yeah, scary. That's like, true. I don't know what to do. <laughs> we're going to kick your ass, kid. <laughs> I was, uh... Terrifying. As soon as I put, as soon as I take my headgear off, so it doesn't get <laughs> caught, I would have beaten you. Mom, where's my headgear? <laughs> All right, so uh, B side, B side, flipping the Flip record over. over. Entree new, entree new, French for between us. That is correct. For me, this is the first really great Rush relationship song. Rush has always been associated with dudes. If you ever went to a Rush concert back in the day, not so much in the recent days, uh, it was a sausage fest. It was mostly white suburban guys. A lot had to do with what the early songs were about, lots of myth mythology, stuff like that. Uh, some of it was the musicianship. Uh, the music wasn't danceable or necessarily fun. And it was a little bit harder, kind of nearing the metal edge that lent itself more to guys than ladies. Like I said, that's changed over time. So on the first several records, there's always been a softer song that I don't think was necessarily an appeal to the ladies. I think it was more to try their hand at softer, slower compositions. Uh, they had a couple songs through the years, namely Tears off 2112, Panacea off Crest of Steel, Madrigal off Farewell to Kings, that were songs about love. This song, Entree New, is more of a song about relationships and not necessarily romantic ones, not exclusively. Uh, see if you can get uh, what I mean from this part right here. Just between us, I think it's time for us to recognize the differences we sometimes fear to show. Just between us, I think it's time for us to realize the spaces in between. Leave room for you and I to grow. That closing line of the chorus, spaces in between, leave room for you and I to grow. I feel that may be the most poignant and effective lyric I have ever read. What a thing to say, you know. I love you. 
I want to be with you and I want to share my life with you, but the time we are apart, the time I need for myself, allows me and you and your alone time to become better and a more fully formed person, and then we bring that back to the relationship. We don't have to spend every second together. We are together, but we are individuals, you know? That is some fantastic relationship advice. I'm just saying. I mean, it's just, and Neil said this, he said, it's almost impossible for us to understand each other. I think no matter how long you've known a person, you can still be surprised by them. And there's still times when you look at them and say, I don't know what you're thinking. You can't get inside another person. It's absolutely impossible. And I think it's such a wonderful song of individuality and understanding one another. Uh, When I was first listening to the song, like I was eight or nine years old, it didn't really resonate, obviously, with me like it would later, but it was very unique. It had such a unique sound to it, more of a straight ahead rock song than, than most of the stuff they had ever put out. But that these slow down, softer choruses, this really bright 12 string guitar kind of peppered throughout, come to find out later. This year, as a matter of fact, when they released the 40th anniversary edition of it, that it wasn't ever a 12-string guitar. Hmm. It was two different acoustic tracks, one with alternate tuning. So I was wrong the whole time. Oh, my God. Bullshit. (laughs) Well, this album's crap now. I can't can't, can't, throw the whole thing out. Can't get through it. What do you have on this? It's such a great song. The The only real fact I have about this song... I do like this song a lot. I think it's a really great opener to the second side of this album. I think I agree with you. It's definitely a, it's not like a a ballad. It's not like a necessarily a love song, but it is very much a relationship song. And I think that it fits well. I think it fits really well. Mm -hmm. The only fact that I've got uh, between us, obviously, is the English translation. Sure. Supposedly, that is from uh, Ayn Rand's 1943 novel, The Fountainhead, which boo to that. Uh, but, uh, apparently, uh, Neil Parrott wrote that because it's how he feels, uh, he feels the sense of rapport with members of the audience yeah, uh, between us. And I thought that was, uh, that was a very good, it doesn't necessarily fit with the, you know, sort of, uh, relationship theme that I think this song has, but I do think that that's a fascinating, if, if true, uh, that's a fascinating, uh, I would say it's very much true. So you have to understand what Neil's relationship was with the audience. And you would find out more of that on the next record when they released Limelight, where he was very much distant. He wanted to be distant from the crowd. He wanted to make music for people, but he wanted to be left alone. And everyone thought, well, he's just a crab. He's grumpy. And he's like, no, I I just I want to do what I do, but I don't want to be worshipped for it. I don't want people... He's like, I was a huge Who fan, but there's no way in hell you would have ever caught me outside of a Who hotel trying to get a piece of them. Yeah. Like, like, give well, me my was, space. He was shy. Right. And I mean, that's that's, uh, that's what and, it came down to. Yeah. So this song's like, you know, the time... It, very much speaking to, you know, the, the spaces in between the records, the spaces when you don't know what I'm doing, you know, leave it... Leave, me a chance to grow as a person, leave you a chance to grow yeah. and listen to other things and then come back to us and go, oh, I appreciate that even more now because of the work they put into it. It's a, it's a big statement. And he was always about those kind of statements that it was a big deal and a very strong song. I, there's a, um, there's a clip from uh, the documentary beyond the lighted stage mm-hmm. it came out in 2010 
Uh, one of the people they interview throughout the whole thing is Billy Corgan from Smashing Pumpkins. And uh, he made a very big point to say he was a weird kid growing up. He he was totally in involved in music, but his parents always thought he was doing things he shouldn't be doing and they didn't really communicate. And he remembers like taking this record and asking his mom, mom, I have something I really want you to listen to. And it was his way of reaching out and communicating with her and saying, this is important to me. I want it to be important to you. Oh. And that it was entree new. And that, that to me, that's saying like, hey, there's other ways to communicate. I'm not going to be able to just sit down and go, well, you know, I'm an angsty teen. I like music me, and I'm kind of, you know, I, I can't, I can't form the words. This is how he was communicating. Like, listen to this. This is me reaching out to you. Like, I think that's, that's a huge beautiful. deal. I'd right? never heard that story before. That's beautiful though. It's a great clip. So Put that in the uh, show I will put notes. that in the show notes, which means <laughs> remind me to put that in the show notes in about six months after this episode is posted. Copy that. <laughs> uh, this hey. song, unfortunately, wouldn't be performed live until 2007. So this one also sat on the shelf for 27 years. Hmm. 27 years? No. Yes, 27 years. Several years. Many, many years. I do uh, I feel that it's important every time I bring up Ayn Rand... I do want to remind everybody Ayn Rand uh, passed away while leeching off the government. <laughs> I do just, I think it's very important uh, that I mention that every time Ayn Rand is brought up. You mean collectivism doesn't work? Yeah, what a surprise. Uh, continuing on. All right. So collectivism, no. no. All right, fine. Different strings. Yes. Yeah, so every, al uh, every Rush album up to this point, always had one track that was considered, quote, their studio track. Mm -hmm. It's a song that they never had any intention of playing live, and they were free to experiment without the limitation of knowing they would have to re recreate it night after night for months. And this was the song uh, on, that re on this record. So the first thing that is notable is that the lyrics are written by Getty Lee. Have that same note. Uh, last time, this is the last time he would take solo credit for lyrics on a Rush really? album. Yes. Wow. However, thematically, it falls neatly in line with the rest of the record. Yeah. Different hearts beat on different strings. Fits nicely with the spaces in between, leave room for you and I to grow from the last song. It seems it's a nice match. And I think, you know, that's a strong testament to the relationship that the singer has with this drummer and lyricist. Uh, they were really never off of the same page. They may be at a different section of the page, but certainly they're still on it. This is also, like you mentioned earlier, uh, this is a song that cover artist Hugh Syme would add his piano playing to. It's some lovely work, too. Yeah, it's, it's, a, a, it's very beautiful piano playing. Right? It's very touching. I'm surprised that he chose to do uh, uh, industrial art rather than be a musician, personally. But, yeah? Yeah. But, but he, uh, did make, he did make that White Snake cover. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful work. Yeah, so good. Just you can see right inside. So, <laughs> so I mentioned way back at the beginning of this episode, which may have been two, three days ago. <laughs> I mentioned uh, Terry Brown in the intro. Uh, yes. And I haven't really mentioned him since then. Uh, now seems like a good time. So, okay. My son, Connor, who is a he's a big hip hop fan. Uh, asked me when I was doing my research for this record what the producer did for this record. Uh, he said with the music he listens to, the producer usually was the one that wrote the beat and did some song construction. They were more involved in the crafting of a song. So Terry Brown, who remixed the first record and subsequently co-produced and engineered all of the other albums up until this point and a couple more after this, 
produced this record with the band, co-produced. Uh, his job consisted of being the objective fourth set of ears. He was there to keep them on schedule, to maintain focus, more or less on completing the job and give suggestions about songs like this part doesn't work or try something else or that's great, but also be a voice who was willing to tell them if something sucked. You know, he was integral for many years in helping kind of define and shape what their sound was. Uh, I bring him up and mention him in this song because he did something that has been debated in rush circles for years and has always pissed me off. Hmm. Uh, at the end of this beautiful, heartfelt song, Alex starts this super blues and distortion-soaked solo, just a really gnarly solo. And right as I think it's going to take an interesting turn, the song quickly fades out during the solo. Hmm. Alex said this of that part. It reminds me of soldiers sitting around a piano in a smoke-filled pub in England during the war. It's the type of solo I really enjoy playing, an emotive, bluesy sort of thing. The only problem is that the solo was added last minute. It really starts to happen as the song ends, which was unfortunate. Unfortunate. <laughs> we got robbed. <laughs> One thing I've said for a long time is I like to div divide the band into the heart, the mind, and the soul. The heart is Getty Lee, strong and organized. He gives life, he gives life to the words, wears those emotions for all to see. The mind is Neil Peart, so intelligent, thoughtful plays drums like no one else before him or since, and he writes so well. But the soul is Alex Lifeson. He leaves it all out there, passionate and frenetic. He is the emotion of the band. To have a solo like this, just laid out there and snatched away, <laughs> seems so <laughs> wrong. And I blame Terry Brown. Terry Brown said about it. At the time, for whatever reason it seemed, no, Let's just fade it out right here because it's so cool. Let's just fade it. And it's going to leave them wanting more. Laughs. Good Laughs? Lord. But we weren't going to get any more now, were we, Terry? We all knew that this was the studio piece and there wasn't going to be a time to play this live. That was it. And I'll never forgive him for that. <laughs> anyway. So, he would produce the next two albums after this, and then the band wanted to see that what other producers would do, so they more or less fired him. <laughs> so has that ever come out? I mean, I assume that recording exists somewhere. Right? No. 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 So it's never been released. No. Do you think that it ever will be? No. No, really? I do not. Huh. I do not. And uh, I will mention that I mentioned that uh, here on the next song, eventually when we get to it. You got, you got more about different strings? Cause no, that's uh, pretty much covered all the notes I've got. You got nothing? No. How about that? Yeah. Natural Science is the next song. So speaking of what I was just talking about, so Rush is known for never having anything left after they go in the studio. They are a manager's worst dream <laughs> because when all is said and done and they have hung up their instrument and Rush is no more, which is currently right now since Neil's passing, uh, there will be no found music, no stuff from the vault to capitalize on. They've always said that if it's good enough to record and put all that work into, then we will make it good enough to release. They, they don't go in with 50 songs and whittle it down to six. That being said, there are two names of songs that diehard fans will bring up when talking about permanent waves. One is Uncle Tanoos. Mm-hmm. I read about that. That was a song they were jamming on during the preliminary stages of the record. It was never recorded. However, bits and pieces of it were reused over the years on songs from this record. 
and stuff from moving pictures as well. I do need to mention, yes. uh, listeners do not type Uncle Tanoos into a search engine. It brings up a lot of weird porn. <laughs> really? Yes. So I was like, oh, I wonder if that recording's out there anywhere. Click, 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 click. And I immediately it's like, Uncle has relations with young woman. And I'm like, nope, what? nope, nope. Get that out of there. Nope. No, thank you. Well, that's strange. Yes. Uh, so don't do that, everybody. Boys and girls, don't. Google Uncle Tanoos. Please. Uh, the other song was Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Hmm. That was a completely finished lyric by Neil and presented to the guys in the band. It turned out, though, thematically, a, mytho- a mythological story wasn't fitting in with the integrity aspect of the record, so they needed something new. So parts of music that were written for Sir Gawain, uh, they used some of those parts and parts from Uncle Tanoos and some new bits to form this song, Natural Science. So there's no fully formed track anywhere hmm. that exists that they could unearth and go, well, what about this song? No, it doesn't exist. They would just recycle and reuse and, and huh. kind of take parts away. That's interesting. Um, I, I do like that, though, because it means there's, on the one hand, a little bit less mystery. You know what I mean? You're, yeah. you're hearing everything that they recorded in the studio there's, or that was recorded, I should say, not that was played, but that was recorded. Why would you fade that song out? <laughs> You're really so upset about pissed. that, aren't you? I'm still pissed. So <laughs> at nine minutes, 27 seconds, uh, this is the longest song on the record. But mm-hmm. unlike the Rush epics of old, it doesn't feel that long. Yeah. Uh, it has a very unusual structure. There's no verse, chorus, verse, chorus structure. It's very direct. It's broken into three parts. Tide pools, hyperspace, and permanent waves. Tide pools... Starts off with Alex and Neil at the shore of the lake at Lou Studio, splashing oars in the water, and freezing autumn cold. Uh, they also set up an ampli- amplifier on the shore and recorded the acoustic guitar out there to make use of natural echo yeah. from the lake and the mountain. I put that note down, too. That's cool to me. People like, don't do that stuff anymore. No. You could probably find a filter that recreates that sound perfectly, <laughs> but there's something about knowing... It was done that way that makes that song that much more intriguing. Hang on, I got this Pro Tools plug-in from Le Studio. Le Studio, it's hold perfect. On. Oh, that sounds like I recorded it outdoors. I know, right? Yeah. I know. So, <laughs> Hyperspace thrusts the band into the future, or maybe the present time for us now. Uh, references to synthetic, pan- uh, synthetic bands, mechanized worlds. Uh, certainly speaking of how quickly technology moves, sometimes to the depth detriment of us and leaves us no time to catch up. I believe this is the part with uh, computerized clinics for superior cynics who dance to a synthetic band in their own image. Their world is fashioned. No wonder they don't understand, right? That is correct. Unless I am horribly mistaken on my timing. No, it sounds but, like uh, it sounds like this. Are you are you kidding me? I picked the I pulled the quote yeah. that you had the audio clip for. Yeah. 
That is uh, serendipity right For there. For a nine and a half minute song, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's uh, that's some uh, dart on top of a dart type of a situation <laughs> right there. Uh, producer Randy let me know that uh, that phenomenon of recording outdoors and using natural sounds is called worldizing. Ooh. Worldizing. 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 And they said it's uh, making a comeback, so that's good. Maybe people actually record like that again. Worldizing. That's cool. So, uh, how about that drum part, huh? Oh, so good. <laughs> so, Permanent Waves, the final section, brings us to a middle ground somewhere between the tide pool and the future. More in relation to the rest of the record, it has this balance. Uh, we don't need to go backwards, but maybe we are more conscious of how we move forward. Otherwise, it gets away from us. So, this whole song, to me, is a metaphor of our total and complete insignificance in the whole scope of the universe. Uh, you think about what he's saying. He uses the tide pool. The tide pool becomes a total and complete society in the span of 12 hours. Little bacteria, maybe a fish or two or a clam, they get washed in there from a wave, and then they get isolated. Their whole universe, their whole existence, in a mere 12 hours. But in the grand scheme of the universe, how long is our existence? hundred years for one person, maybe a hundred thousand years for the whole species on a floating rock that is already five billion years old. It's pretty insignificant. And like the tide pool, when the tide comes in and destroys that little universe, the earth will shake us off after a period of time and it's, it'll be like we were never here and time marches on. It's not a up, very uplifting message, but it's certainly an honest one. Yeah. I've always loved this song for its view of the world. And for the music, you know, it was not performed, again, for a long time, not until 1996. Uh, but they ended up loving it, and it stayed in the live show for most of the subsequent years. One of the best things we've ever done is what Neil called, called this song. <laughs> it's a piece of art, and it says and wraps up everything on the record that came before it. It is the total summation. Uh, again, he said this about it. The whole point of Permanent Waves was to try and use and assimilate everything that we'd learned on previous albums and to write a more concise album. We wanted to write a better album. We wanted to try our hand at writing songs and trying to use the knowledge that we'd learned by using other instruments and sort of assembling melody better than we have in the past. And that was the main intent of the album. Well, Mr. Lee, mission accomplished. Yeah. I definitely think that this, uh, I wrote down the note, all this machinery making modern music can still be open-hearted on this song. I definitely think that the message of this song, just like a wave, leads right back into the first track of this album. Yep. Just over and over again. Yeah. Permanent wave. There you go. Right? And that's Permanent Waves. Yeah. It's, just, uh, it's my personal favorite record of all time. I probably listen to it at least once a month. <laughs> Without fail. So uh, it just holds a lot of memory, and I, I absolutely love it. So if you didn't notice, we did mix this up uh, this episode oh, a yeah. little bit. We're trying something new. We're going to try to do the uh, the show part at the beginning. Yeah. Crazy idea, we know. Uh, and then cover uh, old business uh, here at the end. Right. So do we have any old business, sure. Matthew, from sure. previous so, episodes? So, uh, well, not necessarily from previous episodes, but if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, hmm. I have great news. Uh, you have an opportunity to listen to even more of our discussions Ooh. by becoming a member of our Patreon. Ooh. At our Patreon, which is located at patreon.com forward slash audio judo. Uh, there are three tiers of subscription. First tier is mere $3 a month. 
Oh. Uh, with that, you get early access to episodes and a shout out on our podcast as a loyal producer. $7 a month. You get the above items and access to bonus mini episodes that we call Judo Chops, of which we've already recorded three or four. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're about to record another one in a few seconds. Plus a discount on our merchandise. And at the $20 a month level, you get all of the above and a personalized gift. But most importantly, if you subscribe at that level for one year, you get to co-host an episode of Audio Judo with us on the album of your choosing. Yes. So not only do you get to pick the album, you get to talk with us and call us douchebags. Right. I would. That address, again, is patreon.com forward slash audio judo. There is also a link from our webpage, audiojudo.com, where you can find all these episodes, as well as a whole bunch of information about us and uh-huh. Randy's past as a go-go dancer. Oh, yes. That's very exciting. <laughs> uh, just to give you some idea of what is on the horizon for Audio Judo in the coming months, we will have episodes about albums from Billy Joel, mm-hmm. Genesis, mm-hmm. Daft Punk, Bare Naked Ladies, as well as our holiday episode and end of year episode. So lots to look forward to, and we hope you will stick around yeah. and or join us um, for social media stuff. Go to audiojudo.com or yeah. you go to you can Facebook. E- yeah, you can email us directly, info at audiojudo.com. Uh, that's probably the best way to get a hold of us. Uh, you can also check out our Facebook, facebook.com forward slash audiojudo. On Twitter, we are at audiojudo. On Instagram, we are at audiojudo. And uh, I think that's it. I believe that is all. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye, everybody. Pretty sure Randy recorded me saying, I don't think I could do Rush episodes. You did, didn't you? (laughs) It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.